Everybody knows what graduates think about during graduation. They, their, their thoughts usually configure around three things. Number one, how stupid do I look in this hat or what? That's one of the thoughts they have. Secondly, in June, of course, we ask, I am so hot, why did they ask me to put on a gown to uh, go through this? And the third thing, of course, and it's, it's thoughts that others have thought about on Sunday morning, when will the speaker shut up so this whole thing can be over? By the way, one of the things that's never thought about, by the way, let me stop and celebrate the grace of God. I'll come back to one thing we never celebrate. Rudy and Dottie Stacy are here this morning. First time in a year and a half. And it's so good to see them. Rudy had an event that rendered him unable to walk. These months later, he's walked in this morning. Dottie's been right by his side and helping him forward. And it's just one of those, when you see him, the doxology begins to rise up in your spirit and you thank God for his, his good grace. It's really good to see you. And welcome this morning. We've missed you sitting right there. You fell right back into the old place and uh, we're glad to have you here. Now, one of the thoughts not thought about by a graduate is nobody sitting there asking this question. How can I ruin my life? And how can I do it as fast as I can? Nobody's asking that question. And yet, for as long as there have been former grammar schools and secondary schools and kids have graduated from high school, isn't it true that among Adam's children, many have left high school and they've absolutely ruined their lives? How do you plan for a good future, regardless of how old you are? How do you prepare for a life of flourishing faithfulness? I mean, as Maggie read that passage in Psalm 1, verse 3, I love that picture. The tree planted by the water, its leaves evergreen, lush, healthy, bearing its fruit in season. Just a picture of flourishing. How can we get there? How do we get there? How do we plan for that? How do we prepare for that? Of course, it is true that our adversary, Satan, and the presence of evil in our world pose a threat. Maim, kill, and destroy, that's Satan's agenda for us. I think of what Jesus told Peter when he pulled him aside and says, look, Peter, um, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And isn't it true, can it not be said, that Satan would like to destroy the life of every graduate? Can it not be said that Satan would like to destroy every postgraduate that's here this morning? Isn't that true? This morning... I want to use Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to coach us all into a flourishing future. Come with me to Matthew chapter 7. I want to describe for you what the foundation of our lives says about our future. What's your future going to be like? 
What's mine going to be like? You say, Eric, I'm not 18 anymore. I'm 38 or I'm 68 or I had a good friend and we're all living longer. He just turned 90 yesterday. What's the future going to hold? And there are seasons in life. But Psalm 1 verse 3 can be true of every season. We can flourish. I want you to be fruit bearing. I want to do two things this morning. I want to explore this little story that Jesus tells, and I love it for its simplicity. If anything, Jesus is very clear and straightforward, dissimilar to how I am. I have the gift of making the very simple incomprehensible, where Jesus can take difficult concepts, and he just lays them right there, and we all immediately lay hold of them. This is clear, and I love clarity. First, I want to observe four things about this story and finally reflect with you on why it matters the three ways that this story has implications for us Matthew 7 24 through 29 these are the last verses to this great passage the sermon on the mount everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Hear the word of the Lord. Now let's start with four observations regarding Jesus' closing illustration of building a house. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go 30,000 feet above the story, which for many of us is familiar. And let's think of four important reflections that form a lens through which to look and see this story. Reflection number one, this is addressed to listeners who have heard the word of Jesus. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words, and whether he describes the wise man or the foolish man, both have heard these words. In that sense, this is addressed to insiders, those around Jesus. For this Sunday, we could say it's addressed to those who come to church, those who are in Ignite and Connect who are in our college ministry, who go to one of our ABFs. It's, it's insiders who hear the words of Jesus, folks who've been in and around the message. The one who hears these words of mine and does them. Now there's, among those who hear, that's all of us, there's a particular group that Jesus has singled out, and it's those who do what they hear. Two groups, hearers and hearers and doers. You'll remember James picks up on this and he says, 
uh, don't merely be a hearer of the word, but also be a doer. The word becomes powerful in the doing of the word as the grace of God is at work in our life. And please note from the context, if you'll look, his, the close to the Sermon on the Mount is interesting. He talks about two trees, a fruit-bearing tree and a non-fruit-bearing tree. And he talks about those who are alive unto Christ are going to be fruit-bearing trees. He talks about two roads, the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow way through Christ that leads to life. He talks about his not being enamored with professions of faith. Baptist people who preceded us have uh, really been big time on professions of faith. Let's get them to make a profession of faith. Well, when you get to the close of the Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting that Jesus talks about professions of faith that are not real. They're spurious. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Are they recognizing Jesus as they ought and should? That's the way to address Jesus. Lord, he is the Lord. You say, oh yeah, they got it right. You know, they, they profess faith. But he says to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice iniquity. It was the habits of their life that belied their claim to know the Lord. And so finally then, in a summing way, he tells this simple story about two builders. And so this is the insiders. This is to then, what we could say, graduates at Calvary Baptist Church this morning. This is to all of us who are around and hear the words of the Lord. Well, he begins to uh, sift the crowd with this. And he argues that it's not intellectual knowledge. Is it the right answer that Jesus is Lord? Yes. Is that all you have to do is profess Jesus as Lord? No, unless it is the profession with an obedient life that is standing upon all that Jesus has said to do. So it's not verbal expression. It's a substance of an obedient life. There's a new term that's racing around Twitter and Facebook. It's been around for a couple years. It's called exvangelical. You say, Eric, what in the world's that? Well, it's describing that I used to be a part of a gospel-preaching church that invited people to be born again. And who can argue against John 3, 6? Except, here's Jesus to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. Say, where did you guys ever get that born again concept? Well, we got it from the B-I-B-L-E. And we got it from Jesus' mouth. That's what he said. And so we invite people to, it's our first R, rely upon Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Begin a relationship with him. Stop relying upon our own self-righteousness to be accepted by God. We don't have the right stuff, but we don't need the right stuff. We bring to God our sin. He pours out upon us his grace, the benefits, the merits of Jesus' life, the benefits of Jesus' death that he was so pleased to receive on behalf of everyone who would receive Christ. And I invite you this morning to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. But there are many now called ex-evangelicals. Oh, they've been a part of that. They've left. They've left gospel preaching communities like ours here at Calvary Baptist Church. Oh, the, the, and the stories are legion, the latest. And then they, they have celebrated stories of leaving. 
I'm now an ex-evangelical. Uh, recently, uh, DC Talk, a member of DC Talk, uh, a, a pop Christian rock band. At one point, they were all students at Liberty, and they left, formed a band, did quite well, and uh, have, have a lot of influence. One of them recently has announced that he is an ex-evangelical. Uh, Jesus is rooting around in this neighborhood with this story. It's addressed to listeners who've heard the words of Jesus. Note to self, hearing the words of Jesus is not it or the end. It's in the doing of the works of Jesus that the wise man emerges on this extraordinary foundation. Let's face it, the world is full of people who've left gospel Christianity. Since it's just us kids here, let's just be straightforward. Calvary Baptist Church is not beyond those who were formerly here with us, all in, in gospel Christianity, and who are now ex-evangelicals. Calvary, not immune. You know, once upon a time, David Graham was a youth pastor here. That was a generation ago. When talking to David about who was in his youth group, and by the way, I, I, uh, I love a Sunday like this just to feature Jason and Amy and remind everybody of their faithfulness and the trust that we can have in them and their work among our students. Thank you. And I appreciate Jason's mind and heart. And it's featured this morning in him having poured his life into these, these, these kids through uh, high school and more. Um, David Graham was once the youth pastor here, a generation ago. Now, what's interesting is uh, a generation from now, 40 years hence, we could look back and tell the nature of what was going on in our Ignite ministry, more so than we can tell today. I mean, didn't they all just look beautiful and wonderful and, you know, when they were here? Well, give us 40 years and we'll tell you uh, how things were. But in talking to David... All the stories are not wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. In fact, one of the things I appreciate about David is uh, these 40 years later, he's still pursuing some of them, still burdened for some of them, and is grieved over where they are as a result of where they've been and where they find themselves. Oh, you say, well, I, I'll tell you what, they should have gone to Calvary Christian School. If they'd gone to Calvary Christian School, and I love Calvary Christian School, there's never been a day when Christian education in the midst of this crazy day mattered more, and I'm grateful for Calvary Christian School. There are two stories told about graduates from Calvary Christian School. Ones are glowing, great stories, and we're pulling the best of those stories in now for graduation speakers. And because General Bill Dickens is a headmaster, one would imagine how proud he is of those kids who've gone off to military academies and are now serving in our military with distinction and rising through the ranks. We had a speaker at this year's graduation, and there's another one pending next year that Bill's talked to me about. So excited about these wonderful stories. There are other stories about Calvary Christian School graduates. And let's face it, it's just us kids, of course. They're ex-evangelical stories. They're stories of people who, wherever they've been in the past, they've uh, blown right by that, and they're in a completely different place. You know what happens in our Sunday schools, with our children, in our youth groups? You know what happens? The word of Jesus is heard, and that's wonderful. But the gospel becomes powerful when it's obeyed and becomes a way of life. 
Secondly, this is Jesus' invitation to build a skillful life upon him. The great contrast is between the wise and the foolish. And it's how we build our life. Are we building with wisdom or are we building with folly? I love the Hebrew, the Jewish notion of wisdom. Well, the word means skill in living. Unless it's not obvious to all of us, the one knack that we've lost in postmodern times is a knack for living. We don't know how to live anymore. There's no, we don't know how to deny ourselves, which is fundamental to a good life. We don't know how to live responsibly within the margins, which is fundamental to a, a good life. And there are many other traits of living and skills that we've lost. Our world is full of such pride and arrogance. You know, doing it my way is the way of the world. How does that work for us? Skill in living. Ozymandias was a great Persian king who had a great run. And he loved his run and he loved his kingdom and he loved himself. And he decided to put up a great monument. It's over in the desert someplace out in the middle of nowhere in Iran right now. And on the front of it, in Persian, it says, Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. Now his kingdom is long gone, and the statues, statues actually fell over and prone in the sand, uh, somewhat covered, and that line is full of uh, tragic hubris. I am not sure if he understood skillful living. Jesus teaches us what wisdom looks like. Wisdom is anchored to Jesus Christ. He's inviting them and us to build our lives on him. Remember, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30, you say, Eric, what does wisdom look like? It looks a lot like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, who became to us the wisdom of God. I love wise people, skillful. Here's the notion, skill in living. For 20 years, when we were rearing our children, primarily in those child-rearing years, you know, and pacing our budget together and making everything work, we became very good friends with an appliance repairman. Um, we just had him keep everything going. And I remember one time we had him over, and, and he'd been down in the basement for a while, jacking around with the washing machine. I thought, I better go down and see what's going on. And I walked in on 1,000 parts of our washing machine all over the floor in the basement. And I thought, oh, this is not good. This is not going to end well. And that old hand could tear anything up and rebuild the whole thing take it all apart and seem like, like intuitively to understand how it worked. And I just love to watch him work. He was an old master of that. And, and he just had a skill in doing that. Well, here's Jesus who's saying, I want to give you the knack for living. I want to give you a skill set to practice that will put you in great stead for all of your days and that, here's, that's what he's talking about. There is a skill set that is acquired in life. It is the skill of living for Jesus. 
Even Jesus, it's said of him in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. What a fascinating phrase that's ponderous. But if that's where he was, you and I need to learn more about obedience. And that's what hearing and doing is about. It's, to get back to that old hymn, it's all about, let's summarize it with two words, trust and obey. That's it. Now, the third reflection is this. The difference between these two houses is not obvious. If you and I are walking through the neighborhood and we're looking at the houses, to look at one, not a one of us would say, I'll tell you what, that's a bad house. We wouldn't know a bad house from a good house from how it looked. They both looked the same, did they not? Now, over time, the stories told of them, but to stare at them, they both looked very much the same. On the surface, there was no apparent difference. Now, this comes as a warning to us, especially if we're younger and we look at life, and we have to be very careful what we're looking at. Because we can look at our pagan neighbor, pagan, godless, apart from God, not interested in God kind of person. We can look at them and say, look, their life is fine. They get out of bed on Monday morning. They pass through life. They eat and sleep and they involve themselves and it looks like it's, it's going pretty well. They have nothing to do with Jesus. You know, mom gets me out of bed on Sunday morning and throws me in the car and I go to church. And, but look, there doesn't look to be any substantial difference in their life. They're fine. You know, by the way, the psalmist said this very thing in Psalm 73. Some of you know that psalm. I thought of it this week in this regard. Where the psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in troubles as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. He says, you know what? I looked around and I thought, you know what? Is there any worth in living for Jesus? Does it matter at all? Look, that guy's not living for Jesus. He, you know what he looks like? He looks like he's way okay. She's not living for Jesus. What's her life look like? She looks like it's, 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 it's way, way okay. We have to be careful what we're looking at. Neighbors, work associates, friends not following Christ yet. We can conclude, you know what? I, I, there's nothing to this faith. Please note, unseen issues. One buried, and ones that mattered, they're the heart, and they're not seen, evidently. Seeing can miss what's going on. Please note, the foundation of life is unseen with a casual glance. But it is certainly revealed over time which is what Jesus is saying. The difference between the two houses is not obvious. The fourth reflection, just from 30,000 feet down on this simple story, is the collapse of any house is a great tragedy. Look at verse 27, how Jesus characterizes it. The house falls down, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I think we are losing the value and worth of human life and the contribution that 
in God's mercy, weak, frail people redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ can make to life. We're losing a vision of what a great tragedy it is for a life to be wasted. The announcer in 1937, on May 6th, uh, was in Lakehurst, New Jersey. It was there that a famous event was going to happen. Everybody was going to watch the Hindenburg take off. 37 passengers get on this bougie way to get around, this new emerging thing. They were all going to do it. And they put them on there, and they were serving the caviar and the wine or whatever you have, you know, on a blimp that's pimped out to be really cool. And they untethered from the pole, and the announcer is announcing. It's, it's fascinating to listen to, because in the 1930s, the value of life, given the influence of Judeo-Christian culture, which is certainly waning today, it was so high that the announcer cannot contain himself. It's on YouTube. You can listen to it. The announcer cannot contain himself as he bemoans the tragedy of those lives as he's on live radio and watches the Hindenburg blow up and they're all burned up. But he, he's constrained to express what a tragedy this is. I thought of him and his announcing. I probably should have used the audio track uh, of, of, the, of his description because I think we're losing a sense of the tragedy of a lost life, even one. I mean, you know, it, 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 we'll hear it tomorrow. 24 people died in Chicago over the weekend, and our response will be, oh, well, yawn. Well, yeah, that's you know, down from last week. But even one life is considered by Jesus a great loss. Now, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke was a doctor. Now, he doesn't do it enough. I wish he would have done it more. But every once in a while, he throws in a medical word. Oh, it's so good. He throws in one in Acts chapter 16 when they beat Paul and Silas and throw them in prison. What's their response? They begin to sing. And the word in English is they began to, the other prisoners began to listen intently. That's the word. And it's the word for um, the rudimentary stethoscope they had in the first century for doctors. And when they put it in their ears, they'd use this verb. Luke uses it there, and it's one word out of doctor vocabulary that really makes that passage come to life because those hardened criminals in that prison, as they listened to Paul and Silas sing, it moved him, and they, they listened intently, just like a doctor with a stethoscope. Well, he uses another word in Luke 6, Luke 6.49. Come there with me, if you will. This is the parallel account in the Gospels for the Sermon on the Mount, Luke, who had a, you know, Jesus, uh, Matthew is writing to Jewish people, and so he uses the law and helps people understand that he's come to fulfill the law and helps the people understand that they never, though they thought they had, had been fulfilling the law all the way along. So the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew is long. In the Gospel of Luke, it's written to the Gentiles, uh, a universal savior for a world of people if they would believe and he presents Jesus. So he, he has a shorter one, but he uses a fascinating word in Luke 6.49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. 
when the stream broke against it, immediately, immediately it fell, and the, here's his word, doctor word, and the ruin of that house was great. You say ruin, that just looks like a garden variety English word. Yeah, but if you knew in the first century, this is the word a doctor would use for a ruptured appendix. The word a doctor would use for a ruptured spleen. Or if tragically a person's lower intestines exploded open in their belly, they would use this word. And for a doctor, this is, you know, the doctor comes in and says, her spleen just ruptured. It's the word ruptured. It's, it's the word blown apart. It was used of a dam that they had on the Nile River in Egypt, so critical for, uh, in fact, there's a big argument over it right now because Ethiopia is making a big dam on the Blue Nile and it's messing up Egypt. They're ready to go to war over it. But anyway, the, the, the dam breaks open and it's this word. The dam was ruined. It broke open into a flood. That's what's going on. And he says the ruin the breaking open of a life and the collapse is tragic. It's tragic. I went to my 10th year high school reunion several years ago. I came, I was kind of excited to see my friends from high school. I had not had hardly any contact with most all of them for 10 years. I thought, well, hey, I'll go. I came away so sad. I couldn't believe what 10 years of indulgence had done to my friends. They were devastated. They were messed up. A few were dead. And help me understand what Paul was writing about when he said the wages of sin is death. A few had made their minds feeble with drugs. One came stone drunk, he could hardly stand up, and a few were amused by that, and others of us were saying, you know, what's that? Um, just 10 years. And you know, I left thinking about Sister Susie. There's two things I remember about preschool, Sunday school. I had the privilege, not all of you have, of growing up in a Christian home. Mom and Dad took me to church. You know, there's two things I remember about my preschool, Sunday school. And only two things when it's all over. One is how bad the room smelled because the church basement uh, leaked and, and there was water in there. And so the, it always carried a musty smell. It's like, I'm going in there. That's awful. The other thing I remember is a little story. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. And the rain came tumbling down. Well, the rain came down. The floods came up. You know, and, and all, the, all my friends, the boys, you know, we were aggressive. All we got real big into, you know, rain come down, floods came up. And, and, and the house on the rock stood firm. Foolish man built his house. Sister Susie, she was called, she, she taught us that. That's all I got, by the way. If that's all you get, you have a clear understanding of the nature of life in a broken world where Jesus has come and invites us to build our lives on the rock of everything he has said to do. Lloyd-Jones says, the English preacher, nothing so profoundly tests a man as to foundations as the mighty fact and moment of death. See, you can watch others and say, look, look they're, they're living, they, they have nothing to do with God and their life is fine. Yeah, but can you die like that? How's that work for you when you die? Now, these four reflections help us get our arms around the story. 
Now let's talk about why it matters and go home and live it out. First, what is the common life experience of every graduate and each one of us? Jesus, in this simple story, teases out at least three implications. Number one, everyone's life is built one decision at a time. You've heard the adage, you make your decisions, and then your decisions make you. We have the free natural ability to make a choice. Uh, I laid out a shirt to wear this morning. I changed it. My wife said, hey, why aren't you wearing that shirt? Well, this is Memorial Golf Tournament. You know, Jack Nicklaus's tournament's this weekend, so I thought I had the wrong shirt. And I got to choose a shirt that I was going to wear this morning. So I chose this one. We have free natural ability to make choices. Now, by the way, we do not have free moral ability to choose God. We need His grace. And the glory of grace is it's available. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all suppressed the self-evident truth about God and unrighteousness. We don't choose Him. His grace opens our heart. And whosoever will may come. But when we come, we realize, I got here because He drove the bus. It is amazing grace that brought me home. Graduate, you will shape your life. 40-year-old, you will shape the rest of your life. 80-year-old, you will shape the rest of your life by the choices you will make daily to either honor Christ or not. I want you to have a great life. Eric, I want to have a great life too. How do we get that fount of every blessing to come? Well, we do when we give ourselves to Jesus Christ. At any given time, we're all about three decisions away from destroying our life. Now, I want to stop and go a little different direction just for a moment. You might be here and you say, Eric, I'd give anything to go back in 18. I would give anything to go back of graduating from high school. I'd start over. I would do it differently. I made some stupid choices. I made some indulgent, sinful choices. I tied my life up in a knot and messed up. Well, here's what the Apostle Paul would say to you this morning. Where sin did abound, the grace of God abounded all the more. And there's hope. But hope is not related to how good you are at saving yourself. Hope is tied up inextricably at how good God is at saving us from what would destroy. And here's Jesus at the end saying, build your life on everything that I have asked you to do. We are here today and we'll continue to shape our future through our choices. So I ask you, where will you be in 10 years? Where will you be in 15 years? Where will you be in 20 years? Where will you be in 44 years? where I am 44 years later after wearing that stupid hat for the first time. Number two, everyone, everyone's life faces storms. Everyone's life faces storms. You see, there's two reports of the storm. Report number one in verse 25. That house. Which house? The one founded upon the rock. Report number two, verse 27, that house. 
on the sand. Please note that the report on both houses is that both experience exactly the same thing. Please note, in a broken world, everybody faces storms. If through a TV preacher or some huckster, you signed a contract that said, I'll take Jesus so that I don't have to face storms, and you signed up for that clause, you were mistaken. Because Jesus himself describes life. So here it is, graduate. I'll give it to you, and you don't want to hear it. I'll give it to you, 40-year-old. I'll give it to you, 60-year-old. I'll give it to you, 80-year-old. I'll give it to you, 90-year-old. We're going to face more storms, and they are going to inexorably come. Ask Rudy. They come. But they are not the end. In fact, it is said, oh, I'll tell you what, the storms make a man. I don't believe that a lick. All a storm does is show you what kind of man is there and what kind of woman is there. It was the storm that realized the foundation that those two homes were built on. You couldn't see it till it was necessitated to survive. This is an enduring foundation that will take anything in life. Ask Brian and Rachel Cafferty in this moment. Rachel, who will start chemo for lymphoma on Tuesday. Ask them if a foundation in life matters and if there's anything to stand upon when all around my soul gives sway. He then is all my help and stay on Christ. The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You say, Eric, that's just religious Sunday speak. Look at life. Fast forward 40 years and ask David Graham how it's been and what happened to those kids. What will happen to you? Jesus is inviting you to build your life on him. Everyone faces storms. John Calvin said, true piety is not fully distinguished from its counterpart till it comes to the trial. He's right. The third implication is this. Everyone's life has a foundation that is eventually revealed. Everybody has a foundation. Some of them are sand. Some of them is on, are on solid rock. Back to Luke and the language he uses. You know how he describes a wise man like this. He is the one who dug deep, Luke 6, 48. Matthew 13, 21, remember the parable of the sower? He describes one that flamed out and uh, died. What happened to him? He had no root in himself. Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, 17, being rooted and grounded in love. What are you rooted and grounded in? The number of Snapchat followers, likes on Facebook, Athletic accomplishments, reputation among friends, accruing savings, or the love of God in Jesus Christ, the rock upon which we stand. The foundation is the determining factor. The base shapes everything. If your foundation was unearthed today, what would it show about you? What would it show about your heart? What is the animating center of your life? Where are you going? What are you chasing? Found your life upon allegiance to every word that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. I lived in West Virginia for five years. Um, there's not a flat piece of land in West Virginia. 
Everybody's house is hung off a mountain. We couldn't believe what they would do. So we built a custom home. We connected with a developer that said, I'm going to give you that lot. You stick your house on that lot. So we looked at the lot. From the left front of our house to the back right of our house, the terrain dropped 24 feet. You're going to put that house there? And, and then what they do with heavy equipment is amazing. They get log chains and, you know, get them, get them hooked together. And, and they'll send a guy over the edge, you know, with a hoe or, or, or with a pan or with a blade. And it'll look like he's just going up and down 90 degrees. And they're holding on to him with a couple chains. And he's, it's just amazing. And we had an old, old salty guy. His name was Mark. We loved it. As they built the house, we were living in the neighborhood. And we'd walk by, and remember the day they started building the foundation. We were wondering how this was all going to sort out. They brought one piece of heavy equipment in, and they broke it the first day, beaten down on the rock. And we were disappointed because it held up. So then they bring in the second piece of equipment, <laughs> and they broke it uh, about two days in. It was like, oh, man, this is, this is going to be bad unless they can get the foundation in. Then we'll, hand it, we'll put it right on a rock. It'll be great. So then they brought this massive thing in that had a, jackhammer on the front of it and and uh the guy was down in the hole and went by and said, hey mark how you doing and he shut it down he just yelled out the window this thing don't care and that was his salty country way of saying you know what whatever we need to do this machine will care for it and he was right they dug the rest of the place out and and uh, you know they're gonna put i mean i remember the uh, this sounds absurd, but I remember the footings and the poured basement walls as 144 yards of concrete. I mean, it was a massive thing they put in. And they, they had to dig way down. And so then everybody started telling me, Eric, are you going to build a house there? Yeah, we're building a house. Don't you know about foundations in West Virginia? I said, what, what about foundations in West Virginia? I said, everybody's got a bad foundation. And you can't sell your house and you've got to do all this work. It's terrible. You've got to do something. I go, what am I supposed to do? They said, hire a structural engineer to look at the footings before they pour them. I said, okay. So I hired a structural engineer and made the developer real mad when, you know, the structural engineer sends him a letter and says, hey, look, the back footings of that house are going to hold all the displaced weight from the front in that fall. You need to put a spherical pile on every five feet all along the back so those deep fingers go down with rebar and hold that house. So does all that weight is displaced and held there. It'll hold the house together. And the walls won't fall apart and get all disheveled and, get, and the cement walls won't crack. You get that done. Well, after they finished arguing, they poured those spherical pylons and put that house on there. And those walls were just fine. You know why they were fine? Because that was an atomic foundation. It was amazing. And that old house, hanging off the side of a mountain, stood right there. If you set the foundation right, you can build whatever you need. And Jesus Christ wants you to build your life on him. And he will give you the life you always wanted. And I invite you to him this morning. Heavenly Father, you know every heart, so listen to us pray right now. And Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would affirm everyone who's building his house and her house on the rock. And that they could hear you say this morning, even in this moment of responsive prayer, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. 
You are my beloved son. Lord, you want to put your arm around others and say, are you considering where you are going and what is the organizing center of your life? Lord, deliver us from sand. Deliver us under the rock. Everything you've said to do. Lord, when you're 18, life seems like it's going to be forever. And you stumble upon 62 and you're astonished at how quickly you got here and how quickly it passes. But you're also in a position to see, Lord, that Jesus was right all along. What a glory there is to build your life on Jesus. Will you help us, Lord? We're tempted. We're distracted. We're seduced by our world, the flesh, the devil. But there is our faithful Savior calling us again this morning. Come to me. Build your life on me. Thank you, Lord, that your ways are right and good. And you want to prove to us that there's nothing in life like the pleasure you take in our obedience. And when realized, it's like an addicting drug. We want more of it. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Take our hearts. They can seal them for your courts above. Thank you that the rock is Jesus and he's available to us. Work in our hearts. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together in response.